Thanks for thanks for joining the initial installment of, of Callbox Dialed In. On the phone with me today, I have Brian Kalea, who's the director of Siphonite's DSO Industry Group. He's widely regarded as one of the foremost authorities in the U.S. on corporate practice and industry. Uh, he currently works with clients in 46 different states and has appeared before 37 separate state dental boards. So suffice it to say, Brian knows, uh, he knows DSOs. So, Brian, thanks for, thanks for joining me today. Well, uh, really, really glad to be here. I will correct you. We've now been in front of all 50 state dental boards, just uh, by way of an intro on there, but it's my honor to be here, and thank you for having me. That is awesome. Who were the last ones to, to get involved? North Dakota, uh, Alaska, and Alaska uh, were the last two, and in 2000, well, here we are in 2018, earlier this year. Uh, I had the privilege of going in front of the, the uh, Alaska Dental Board uh, and also the Hawaii Dental Board. That's awesome. That is great. Well, congrats. So, uh, so tell me more about your background. I know you began as a as a litigator. Why the transition into dentistry? Well, you know, I was hired about. Now it's you know none of us are getting uh, any younger here. Now it's about 15 to 20 years ago. I was hired to represent a group of orthodontists uh, against Orthodontic Centers of America and Orth Alliance, the very first generation GSOs. And, um, you know, there was a lot of litigation and a lot of problems. Um, ultimately, uh, Orthodontic Centers of America ended up filing for bankruptcy due to uh, their inability to uh, really, I think, effectively run the DSO program from a regulatory standpoint. I represented the um, – the plaintiffs in those actions, and we had a lot of lawsuits uh, going, because you alluded, of course, to my background as a litigator. That's how I got my start, and we ended up being a part of the case. I think we had, like, 36 lawsuits in 18 states, and um, we made the law as to what is a regulatory-compliant DSO relationship and what is not a regulatory-compliant DSO relationship. Uh, I was personally a part of all of those cases that made the law in this area. And after those cases sort of concluded, uh, my phone began to ring with all of the uh, investors that were interested in continuing it to invest in the DSO space. They thought it was a great business model. It just wasn't executed in a compliant manner uh, by the first generation, but they wanted to see if there was a way to do it in a compliant manner, and they thought I knew a little something about that, and I did. And, uh, you know, I, I gradually, I think in the early 2000s, picked up 5, 10, 15, 20 clients, and now as we sit here in 2018, I think we have 372 DSO clients in all 50 states. Wow, that is interesting. So so the, the group group dentistry and the, the trends of, of consolidation, it seems like this is booming. Um, what do you think for, for a solo practice, uh, you know, as, as this landscape is changing? Well, for a solo or a small group practice or an emerging practice, what I always say is we're, we're undergoing the great evolution of dentistry, the great consolidation of dentistry, and the great opportunity for solo and emerging practice. You've got those three things. You have the great evolution and that the industry is evolving from solo offices to group offices to DSOs. 
then you have the great consolidation in as much as the solo office and the group offices are being bought up by DSOs and private equity investors and other investors, and then you have the great opportunity. I mean, this is the best time ever if you're a solo uh, dentist or an emerging group owner. This is the you know, once-in-a-generational type opportunities to roll up your business for way above uh, historical market returns. So, so tell me more about the opportunity, because as, as I'm sitting here putting myself in the shoes of a, of a solo practitioner, it, it seems scary. I guess where do you start? I mean, it, it can seem, you know, I, I don't like the term scary. Nobody should be scared. I, I think it seems overwhelming, maybe, because there's so much activity and so much opportunity that where do you start, what do you do? I, 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 I definitely agree with that. I, nobody should be scared. In fact, if you play your cards right, there's such tremendous opportunities. Uh, you, you know, I think it's going to end up positive for most folks. So scary would not be an emotion I would encourage, but it can be overwhelming. And, um, you know, I think you have to figure out what your organization is. You have to figure out uh, what your EBITDA is. If you don't know, that's earnings before um, income, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's the gold standard that the industry uses to calculate value of organizations. And, you know, you've got to start with your EBITDA, and um, you have to sort of take a profile, almost like a selfie, if you will, of your organization. For example, what does your payer mean? look like? Are you heavy on Medicaid or do you have no Medicaid or something in the middle? What type of infrastructure have you had? Have you invested in, you know, the, the latest and greatest, um, you know, accounting reporting uh, software and billing and collecting or are you still operating with dusty boxes in your attic? Because all of these things can affect the opportunity and the value of your organization. The lower the Medicaid, the higher the, the return you're going to get the more uh, infrastructure you have in place, meaning like if you were a house, are you move-in ready or are you a fixer-upper? If you're a fixer-upper, you're going to get a lower return. But if you make some investments and you're move-in ready and you modernize everything, you're going to get a higher return. Also, you know, do you have a sustained plan of growth? Can you replicate the success of your office into many other offices? You know, and there's not really a wrong answer. If you can't replicate it, then there's somebody that will still buy your office and an opportunity still exists for you. But if you can replicate it, and it's sort of like, I don't want to use the term cookie cutter, but if you've got a clear vision and um, a clear methodology for opening up offices and it's pretty clear that you can replicate that, then there's going to be even a greater opportunity for you. But even a solo office has plenty of opportunities right now in this marketplace. Sure. So, does, and, and that kind of goes hand in hand, I guess, with why there's such an opportunity and an eye from, from outside investors and, and management groups. Is it, it's almost just implementing these systems uh, to start getting that, that return that everyone's looking for? Well, you know, dentistry has proven to be virtually recession-proof. When we had the Great uh, Depression of the 2007-2008-2009 timeframe, Dentistry did very well, even despite that extremely um, difficult market condition. It continues to do well. There's a shortage of dentists, and there's an abundance of supply or demand for dental services. So all of these market forces make dentistry very, very attractive, and a segment 
of the healthcare industry that I think is going to continue, most commentators agree, is going to continue or is likely to continue to yield above market returns um, into the next, you know, 10 years or so. So all of these reasons have captivated the investment community, and there are tons and tons of private equity groups, family funds, big DSOs, and other money that wants to invest in dentistry. And for the solo or the emerging group, this presents a once-in-a-generational type opportunity. That is excellent. So walk through just for, for somebody that would be new to this idea, some of, some of the advantages of, of, of joining a DSO versus, versus staying solo or staying in a group. Well, I mean, the first thing you have to consider is you, there will come a time that you're not really going to have a choice in the matter, okay? And I don't frighten anybody. Today, you've got lots of choices. Nobody that listens to this little podcast or, you know, our, our, our discussion here today needs to feel pressured that they have to do something today or tomorrow. I mean, you can take your time and make your decision, but that being said, there will come a time in the next few years where enough of the industry consolidates that it becomes difficult to compete if you're a solo office. You know, think about it. When you're a DSO, you get massive volume-based buying discounts. Likely, you've negotiated superior terms with providers. So you've got, not providers, you know, insurance payers, insurers. So you've got more money coming in, less money going out, lower overhead. So it's going to become more challenging and more difficult for the solo or the small emerging group to compete in this marketplace. So it's not, you know, necessarily even a question of, you know, should I do this? It's a question of the market is driving this consolidation. And I think most folks are going to find when they do an individualized, you know, financial analysis of their situation that they're going to be better off, you know, affiliating either with a DSO or a private equity group, and long-term, that's going to be the best option for them. So I think it's more a question of the market is shifting, that that just becomes something that really has to occur. You know, you don't have to do it, but it's just going to be much diff- much more difficult to compete long-term if you don't. And for specialties, they're going to lose a lot of their referral sources. For example, if you're an orthodontist right now or an oral surgeon and you rely on referrals from, you know, general practitioners, as those general practitioners continue to affiliate with DSOs, the DSOs are going to want to keep that specialty work in-house, and they're not going to refer to you anymore. So there's lots and lots of market forces that make it, you know, really the most, you know, the, the most appropriate and the, the most viable course of action for solo or emerging groups right now. Sure. So, so at what point in the, the, the practices, you know, lifetime, would you typically recommend they consider the DFS structure? Is there, is there are there certain checklists or check boxes that, that you look for? Um, really, anybody that wants to expand beyond one or two offices should be reorganized as a DSO in this marketplace because it's the only structure that will allow for non-dentist participation as an investor. So um, that's that's the first thing. Uh, with respect to you know when is the right time to do some type of sale or equity event. I've got clients in their 30s that, you know, start practices in their 20s, grow them to a couple offices, and then, you know, sell them in their early 30s. You know, and obviously they're nowhere near retirement age, but the practices have hit a certain amount of critical mass and are profitable, and there is interest in people that want to buy them, so they do it. 
obviously, you know, if somebody's in their 50s or 60s, you know, and, and they're looking to exit, you know, the, the industry or they're looking to be relieved of the responsibility to run their own office, but they want to work maybe. Maybe you're 59 years old and you want to work until you're 65, but you're tired of running the business side of your office. You know, that's an obvious transition right there. You should affiliate with some type of DSO, and you can continue to work until you're ready to retire, but you'll take some money off the table and not have to basically run the business side of your dental practice anymore. So, but, uh, you know, so the people that are, you know, uh, you know, more senior, I think um, it's an obvious choice to start to do that, but a less obvious choice, and one we see all the time, are dentists even in their 30s, very young folks with lots and lots of uh, working life left, but they've built a successful organization, and they simply can't turn down some of the offers they're getting. Hmm. How how long does that process take uh, from, you know, courtship to, to joining on? Yeah, you know, that's one of those, like, I always like to say it's a marriage, right? And so, so imagine you just asked me the question, how long does it take to marry somebody from courtship, right? What would your answer be? Your answer would be some people do it in two weeks in Vegas. Other people could be engaged for years. And it's funny, the same applies to the dental industry. You know, I've seen courtships where it's love at first sight, and within, you know, 30, 60 days after the people are introduced, we're doing some type of transaction. And then I've seen folks that talk to each other on and off for a couple years before we ultimately close the deal. You know, it's really specific to the individual. And there's no necessarily any correlation to the success of those partnerships. From that, that length of course. No, no, there's really not. You know, I mean, you know, it would be, you know, how many folks in, in life have you seen, you know, they got married in 60 days and shockingly they're here, you know, 30 years yeah. later, and then you see some folks that dated for years and got married and they got divorced after six months. You know, it's just, there's no correlation. What I tell people is you have to pick the right partner, however you do that. Some people know right away. Some people it takes longer, but you have to pick the right investment partner. And if you pick the right investment partner, then you're going to have a long – well, you know, I say long. And these things are turning in three to five years. So it's not like you're getting married for life. I want anybody that listens to this to understand what the play is, right? You get into a courtship often. If it's a private equity investor, you may only be with that person another three or five or six years before they turn the business again to another investor. Now, if a DSO, a large DSO is acquiring you, yes, that'll be more of a lifetime partnership until you retire. But, you know, you got to understand you're going to be doing business with these folks typically well after the equity event. So you got to pick the right partner and somebody that's a good match and a good fit, and you'll be able to get along with, whether that's three to six years or whether that's 10 or 15 years. So... So what's involved in that, uh, we'll keep using the word courtship, what what should a, you know, a, a solo practitioner or a, a small groupie be looking for? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, everybody's got a little different interest, right? You know, the buyer is going to want to look at the EBITDA and the financial figures, and they're going to want to see, and the payer net and the infrastructure, and they're going to want to see mechanically if the office is a good fit. That's what they're going to look at. But for the seller, for the solo or the emerging group, they're going to want to see, you know, what's life going to look like post-closing when I've sold all the assets in my practice, I now have a management agreement in place, and I've got an employment agreement with 
you know, my, my new office. You know, I don't really own my office anymore. There's another licensed dentist that, you know, is loyal to the DSO that owns my office, and I basically have an employment agreement. You know, what is it going to look like? And you should talk to in advance who the new owner of your office is going to be in that scenario and make sure that's a good fit. I mean, sometimes people just look at the money, and the money seems like it's, it's good and, in fact, is good, but then they get up in a work environment that doesn't work for them, that, that's very unpleasant, and, you know, it, it can create issues. I mean, the good news is you have taken some money off the table, but if you've still got five or ten years to work and you realize suddenly, hey, this was nice that I made money off this deal, but I can't stay here anymore because I don't like these folks or I don't get along particularly well or it's not a good fit, you know, that can be a stressful situation. So you've really got to do your diligence, you know, in advance. You want to talk about clinically who you're going to be reporting to. In some situations, you can do an equity event and still own your office. It'll just be subject to management agreements so you can continue to have complete clinical control over your office. And that's usually a desirable situation. Other uh, situations, a new dentist will come in and own your office and you're going to have to report to that person and you'll need to understand, is that a good fit? And then also, you should figure out, you know, what it's going to look like post-closing on the non-clinical side. You know, if it's a DSO, are they going to change all the policies and procedures and operations of your office? And if they are, is it something you can live with? If it's a private equity investor, what's it going to look like? You know, who are going to be the non-clinical folks they're going to bring in to run the business? Uh, you know, do you share the similar philosophy with these folks? Or is it going to be, you know, difficult? Is it not a good fit or is it a good fit? These are things that you really should uh, do your diligence on. And many folks, quite candidly, do not do their diligence on this. And then they figure it all out post-closing and sometimes find themselves in undesirable situations and they wish they never did the deal. And a couple times a year, quite candidly, we did about, 83 of these types of transactions last year, and we had two of them that we unwound after they closed because the folks, it just was such a rotten fit. The best thing to do was to unwind the transaction. Well, let's, let's stick to the positive. Can, can you share with us who's, who's doing it well? Um, you know, I, I really am careful about that. I, I try not to because we represent so many folks in the marketplace it would be like, you know, which kid is your favorite? I really try not to – I try not to do that, but I, I do say that, you know, obviously if anybody on this on this call wants to have a private discussion about, you know, some of my views about, you know, certain organizations, I'll do that, but I really try not to do them on public podcasts. But I will say that not everybody does it the same way, and not every DSO operates the same way, and there are pros and cons among everything. There are large DSOs that have, you know, what I would call well-defined operating procedures for how they do things. There are uh, mid-level DSOs that have a little more flexibility in how they operate, and then there are emerging DSOs that are acquiring practices that are completely flexible for how they do things. So, you know, you just got to kind of figure out which type of environment is going to work best for you. I can tell you, though, there are DSOs in every category. There are very large DSOs, mid-sized DSOs, and emerging DSOs that are doing these things very, very well. And then if we went back through those categories, unfortunately, there are some large DSOs and mid-sized DSOs and emerging DSOs that are kind of struggling. And that's why in this marketplace, you've got to pick the right part. So it's safe to say you'd recommend going on a couple of dates before you uh, make any long-term decisions. 
I absolutely, I absolutely would. I mean, the reality is, uh, you know, it, it's not uncommon for uh, solo groups or, or emerging groups to get several offers and a lot of interest depending on their situation, and sometimes it's very tempting to either jump at the first, you know, big offer or if you have competing offers, to jump at uh, the largest of the competing offers, but I can tell you price is not always. I mean, sometimes the highest price is the best deal, and that's what you should do, but it's not always. The best price is not always the best overall offer. Sometimes a little lower price that is a better long-term fit and that's going to be the best deal. So I, I do encourage people to go on multiple dates and explore the options that are available. The reality is some people don't. Some people just find it better to jump at the first offer. And, you know, you, you have a higher risk of maybe putting yourself in a situation that's not advantageous to you if you do that, if you don't do your diligence. I, I have to be honest. Some people jump at the first thing, and they're perfectly happy with it, but you have a higher risk of having a problem if you do that and you don't do your diligence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a term that we hear a lot is, is multiple. Um, first, and I, I think that's part of the, the, the pricing you were just alluding to, talk, talk to us. First, I guess, about the idea of a multiple, what is it, um, and then what, what are you commonly seeing in the industry today? Yeah, I mean, it's a multiple of EBITDA, and I went over EBITDA a few minutes ago. Basically, if you're, you know, we'll use easy numbers. You know, if your EBITDA number is $100,000 and somebody pays the five multiple, you're going to get half a million dollars. You know, that's a simple math. These are made-up numbers, but, you know, that's what you'll get. If you're a, a multiple, I'm sorry, if your EBITDA is $100,000 and somebody pays 10 times, you'll get a million dollars. I mean, that's, that's how it works. The buyers are going to pay you a multiple on EBITDA to purchase your, your uh, office or offices. And uh, what determines, you know, how big the multiple is, is, first of all, the type of investors. If you're doing a deal with a large ESO, you're typically going to get four to six times uh, multiple because that's how the large ESOs, you know, do it. They don't pay super, super high multiples. If you're doing a private equity deal and you're you're large enough to, to get a private equity deal, um, you know, they, they'll typically pay a higher multiple, but you're going to have to roll over a good portion of the purchase price, meaning if they pay you $1 million, you may get 600000 up front and 400000 rolled over and is redeemed for shares in the organization going forward. You have to hang around for, five, you know, three, five, six years, and then when they sell it the second time, you can participate in a second equity event. I mean, that's the play with you know, a private equity deal versus a DSO deal. There's a higher risk, typically, with a private equity deal. You know, if a very large DSO with many, many hundred affiliated offices acquires your practice, generally we know what's going to happen with few exceptions. You know, you're now going to be a part of that DSO. You're going to, you know, you're going to be a part of their standard operating procedures, and they know a little something about running dental offices because they have hundreds of them, and we probably know what's going to happen. That's why it pays a lower return because it's a safer investment. If a private equity group buys your three or four office group and says their goal is to grow it to 25 and then sell it, and participate in a second equity event, we don't necessarily know that that's going to be successful. I mean, the industry is doing very, very well right now, and a lot of people are making a lot of money, but it's not a gift. We don't necessarily know that's going to be a success, and there's a lot higher risk. That's why they'll typically pay a higher multiple, you know, for the opportunity to do that. 
So one, to answer your question, it depends on who the investor is will determine the multiple. And then second, what you've done with your practice will determine the multiple. Like I said earlier, what's your payer mix? Are you heavy Medicaid, no Medicaid, or only a little bit? The lower Medicaid, the higher the multiple. What type of infrastructure do you have in place? You know, do you have, um, you know, the, the latest, greatest, you know, software and reporting system? You'll get a higher multiple versus uh, do you need a big upgrade, a costly upgrade? Uh, second, what is your plan for growth? If you have a solid and sustainable growth plan that makes a lot of sense, you're going to get a higher multiple. How are you as an operator? If you're interviewing and they look at you and they say, this guy's a, you know, this person is an outstanding operator, you know, that's probably going to get you a premium versus this person's, a, you know, not, not the best operator in the world. We're going to have to get some other people in here to help with the practice. All of these things go into the multiple that you get. That's great. So, so you mentioned that your, your plan for growth and how growth fits in there. Um, you know, the call that throw it off the phone. How would you say this phone call management plays into that idea of growth and, and what these, uh, what either DSOs or private equity groups would be looking for? Well, no, yeah. I mean, if you have an industry leading, you know, uh, you know, a lot of these, you know, phone answering or artificial intelligent component systems where, you know, you're handing, handling effective phone management. You're not missing calls. You're effectively selling, you know, the way you need to sell to the patients and you're covering all the bases, this is going to be something that's going to positively influence, you know, uh, the multiple versus, well, who answers the phone? Oh, uh, Betty answers the phone. You know, she's worked here for 20 years. She just picks up the phone. Well, what does she do? Well, well she just kind of, you know, answers the phone. What are the policies and procedures? Well, not really. She's just been doing it for like 20 years and she just does what she's always done. You know, that's going to be something that's going to need upgrading versus how do you answer the phone? Well, we have industry-leading software. We have tools, and this is what we do, and we make sure we answer every call, and we make sure the folks that are answering the calls say what they're supposed to say to maximize, you know, the selling opportunity with the patient. You know, that is going to generally be one of several things that will lead to a higher multiple than we don't have anything in place. Excellent, excellent. And we'll we'll wrap up after this one. What what advice from your chair would you have for somebody who's either just graduating or, or getting into this space? Well, if you're just graduating dental school, you have to understand the DSL marketplace. You know, I've been invited to teach at a dental school, and I'm considering that opportunity more for the educational value. I, I feel like our dental schools have not done the greatest job, just like me being a lawyer, our law schools haven't done the greatest job of teaching the business of the law. Our dental schools haven't done a great job of teaching the business of dentistry. And if you're just graduating and you're listening to this, you have to gain some understanding of the DSO industry because if you're, you know, however old you are when you graduate, what, 25 or 26 or something, this is your lifetime will be the DSO model, right? If you're 60 years old right now, you probably can get away with burying your head in the sand and saying, I'm just going to finish out my last two years and I'm not going to worry about this DSO thing, although there may be a very good opportunity to sell your office, so I think you should be paying attention to it. But, yeah, you've probably got some flexibility not to worry as much if you're in your 60s, but if you've just graduated dental school, you need to understand everything you can about the DSO model and everything I said, the evolution of dentistry, the consolidation of dentistry, and the opportunities in dentistry, because this will be your entire working career will be under this new uh, paradigm shift of the industry.
Well, Brian, thank you so much. If, if anybody has a question on anything they heard or, or they want to learn more about the DSO world, how can they contact you? Yeah, I mean, I can be found at dykemadso.com. That's D-Y-K-E-M-A-D-S-O.com. My name, again, is Brian Kaleo, and, uh, you know, my, my number also is uh, 214-462-6409 or Kaleo at dykema.com. Maybe um, when you list this podcast, uh, maybe you'll list my contact information as well. But I'm very happy to talk to anybody that wants to learn. You know, we've got a very large team over here, and um, I'd be delighted to chat with anybody that's interested in learning more about the evolution of dentistry and the DSO industry and what the opportunities might be that are available for them. Great. Yeah, you can find Brian at, at those sources. He's also really active on the uh, conference circuit as well. Seen him speak a couple of times, and that's always uh, that's always great. So, I, I do. If you'll give me one more second, I can't ever yeah. leave these things without pitching, you know, without uh, plugging our conference. We have an industry-leading DSO conference this year. It's going to be July 10 through the 13th, uh, uh, 2019, in Dallas, Texas, at the Omni Hotel. You can find that at DykemaDSO.com. I think you guys are going to be there. You're going to be prominently featured. I'm excited you'll be at our conference. So I didn't want to leave this without at least plugging the conference, if you don't mind. No, thank you. Yeah, we'll be there again. That was a, that was a great one. Really enjoyed that. And a ton of great speakers and a lot of awesome content. Thanks for listening to Callbox Dialed In. If you'd like to be kept in the loop on future episodes, subscribe directly or on your favorite podcast app. Callbox is a comprehensive tool used by more than 5,000 dental practices and DSOs to optimize phone handling processes, increase appointments, and improve caller experience by providing insight into every patient phone call. To learn more, visit us at callbox.com slash dental.